Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode features the music from the 1997 film The Lost World. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. So we are now in 1997 on the musical journey through John Williams' career as a film composer, but it feels like we are back in 1993. The maestro was working with Steven Spielberg in 1997 on another dinosaur movie and another historical drama, just as he did in 1993. Though both 1997 films did not match what Spielberg made with Jurassic Park and Schindler's List, the results had some moments worthy of applause. And this episode of The Baton will focus on the dinosaur movie Spielberg made in 1997, the sequel to Jurassic Park called The Lost World, Jurassic Park. And I have a co-host joining me to walk through this score. Alex Hoffman, it's great to have you here. Hi Jeff, thanks for having me. Tell us about your musical background and how you became a fan of John Williams' music. Uh, yeah, sure. So I'm currently an undergrad at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and I'm studying music education. Um, I'm a trombone player, and I'm planning to go into orchestral conducting in grad school. Um, so I'd really love to be able to conduct some of William's scores at a live-to-picture concert one day. That would be fun. So we've had a lot of trombone players as co-hosts on this show. It's so bizarre. Of all the brass instruments, it seems to be the most difficult to play, but it seems like there are a lot of people out there who really love it. So what is it about the trombone that attracted you to it? I'm going to tell you the truth, Jeff. I was just randomly recommended the trombone in elementary school. But with that being said, I do have a ton of fun with it. Um, The slide is, of course, the best part of the instrument, but it's also a really versatile instrument, and I think it works well with soft lyrical lines and really loud in-your-face statements. So we trombonists may not get the melody very often, but when we do, the composer definitely means business, uh, like in the Imperial March. Uh, Speaking of that, Star Wars was actually where I was introduced to John Williams uh, and the trombone. The special edition release of A New Hope score was the first CD in my collection. Um, My parents uh, ended up showing me a bunch of Spielberg's films, and then I realized it was all the same person writing all this great music. Um, So now I've got a whole stack of the La La Land releases and a big collection of scores from Williams Concert Suites. Um, His music also ended up introducing me to classical music. Um, because he uses a lot of influences from classical composers. Um, For anyone who's interested, I'd say Strauss, Mahler, Tchaikovsky, and if you're really patient, Wagner are all really good places to start to see those similarities. I like to call those influences, though people who aren't fans of John Williams tend to say he's directly stealing from these classical composers. But I think at this point in the history of music, it's impossible to be completely original. So using some of the greats as a starting point seems fine to me. So you're approaching this score for The Lost World differently than all my previous co-hosts in that you don't count it as one of your favorite scores. So tell the listeners why you wanted to join me to talk about this score. You're correct, Jeff. This is... Not one of my favorite scores. Um, However, I think it deserves a lot more recognition than it gets. 
Um, it went in a completely different direction than the first film's score, uh, and it's a lot different than pretty much any other Williams score up to that point. Um, if you know the music of Hans Zimmer, uh, I think you might agree that this is probably the closest Williams has ever gotten to Zimmer-style scoring. So how would you define Hans Zimmer's composing style? I'd say Williams tends to have themes and melodies kind of move along the score, um, and Zimmer tends to use rhythm instead. So the music from The Dark Knight, Interstellar, and Dunkirk all come to mind as good examples. Um, Zimmer uses lots of percussion, repeating patterns in the strings, and sometimes even a ticking noise to move the cue along. Uh, Williams also does this, but I think he tends to highlight a melody on top of it, whereas Zimmer tends to highlight the repetition and the rhythm itself. So yes, you hit the nail right on the head about the change in style of this Lost World score. There isn't much thematic material present in the score that stands out as much as we heard in 1993. It really is guided by instrumentation and tonality. The Lost World turns out to be a landmark score in that the style and the sound of this music will be heard in just about every John Williams action score going forward. If you listen to the Jurassic Park episode I co-hosted with David Kay, we talked about the gradual direction that score took near the end from a melodic construction to a more tonal construction. So Williams was already making the shift back then. And it's one of the few sequel scores in which Williams doesn't rely on the themes he created from the original film. Uh, in fact, there are only three brief moments in the score that use melodies from the 1993 film. Uh, the rest is all completely new to The Lost World. And when you think about movie sequels, you don't necessarily think more of the same. So it should come as no surprise that Williams was looking to shake things up as the film also tried to be very different from its predecessor, while also paying homage to what came before it. Author Michael Crichton, who wrote Jurassic Park, was not extremely interested in writing a sequel to the Jurassic Park novel, even though he left the door open for one with the plot line in the first book that some of the dinosaurs might have found their way to the mainland of Costa Rica. In order to get a sequel made, Spielberg pressured Crichton to write a follow-up novel as a blueprint for the film version. But Spielberg didn't think the plot of that book was really good movie material, with the exception of the scene involving the trailer assaulted by the T-Rex parents. So Spielberg enlisted David Kep to write a screenplay loosely based on The Lost World, but also putting in many scenes from the original novel that were not used in 1993, and adding many new ones. Jeff Goldblum's Ian Malcolm was the only one of the original trio of scientists to return for The Lost World, both in the novel and in the film. I didn't really miss the presence of Sam Neill and Laura Dern, Alex, mostly because there were so many other new characters to fill the void. And Goldblum was one of the biggest stars of the time, not only because he was one of the stars of Jurassic Park, but because of his role in the sci-fi film Independence Day in 1996, which had made a lot of money. Universal Pictures was hoping his return to Jurassic Park was going to be a big draw for fans. But the addition of human characters was just the start of things. There are a lot more dinosaurs in the Lost World, most of them computer-generated. Unlike the first film, these CGI dinosaurs were created to interact with the human characters more, a major step forward for visual effects in Hollywood. And to up the ante, there is not one T-Rex, but actually three, two parents and a baby. 
This movie definitely does not rank as high as Jurassic Park, but it also doesn't come off to me as a total cash grab. It's nice to see a few elements of the first book come to life that weren't seen in the first movie. Uh, the compies come to mind as one of those additions from the book. Uh, when a compie attacks a man in Costa Rica, the search to figure out what it is takes up probably the first third of the book, yet we never saw them in the first movie. Um, we also get a nod to dinosaurs on the mainland with the T-Rex scene near the end of this film. Uh, and we see more dinosaurs we hadn't seen yet, like the Stegosaurus. And I think Spielberg wanted to pay a bit of homage to the other film titled The Lost World, which was a 1960 movie about a mysterious region in the Amazon inhabited by dinosaurs, among other species. Now, there's an entire plot line in that movie about taking a baby T-Rex back to the United States. And there's also a scene in which a woman is saved when two dinosaurs decide to fight each other instead of eating her. Both moments appear in the 1997 film. So Spielberg was also responsible for the final act, featuring an adult T-Rex loose in San Diego. So once the script was settled, Spielberg started filming The Lost World with gusto in fall 1996 in the western United States. The crew did go to Hawaii for a couple of days of filming, just as they did for Jurassic Park, but it was the redwood forests of California that provided the backdrop for most of the jungle scenes. Though directing the movie might not have been a difficult task for Spielberg, it might have been for The Lost World. He was now a studio head, as one-third of the DreamWorks Pictures studio in partnership with Jeffrey Katzenberg and David Geffen. He spent 1994 setting up the new company, but always had a clause in his contract that he could continue to work for other studios, hence the ability to make The Lost World for Universal. As the de facto head of the company's film department at DreamWorks, Spielberg had to oversee production on all the movies DreamWorks was producing, including one he was about to release later in 1997. So just as he did in 1993, Spielberg was pretty much working on both of these films at the same time. When filming ended, he went right to work for Amistad, but luckily everything was to be shot in North America, including some scenes done on the Universal lot in Southern California. Spielberg was unable to be on the soundstage when John Williams was recording the Jurassic Park score, but he was there for a few sessions for The Lost World, I'm sure. Now, between his work on Rosewood and The Lost World, Williams went to a galaxy far, far away for a brief moment, composing new music for the revised celebration sequence at the end of the special edition version of Return of the Jedi set for release in February 1997. The style of this composition, Williams said, would be used at the end of the upcoming first film in the Star Wars prequels, which was set for a summer 1999 opening. So I'll talk about that later in the episode for The Phantom Menace. Alex, let's, uh, let's get back to the Lost World score now. Sure, yeah. One of the standout aspects of The Lost World is its use of percussion. Uh, the scoring stage where Williams recorded the music likely had a larger-than-usual section for all the various percussion instruments he would use for the score. While John Williams was creating the style of the score in an, uh, early stages with Spielberg, an interesting suggestion came from the director. Uh, here's John Williams talking about that in an interview he did for the DVD of The Lost World. Steven's idea was that this was all taking place on an island someplace in some, in some Caribbean area. 
and that the music might ha might be driven by some drums, if you like, or some sort of ethnic or uh, jungle kind of uh, uh, texture or flavor that might drive the music and might give it a kind of unique flavor. And so much of what in the action sequences I did, to begin with at least, was driven by this by this drum thing, which I enjoyed. And we had some wonderful percussionists come onto the stage. And it contributed a nice flavor, I think, to the film. I haven't made an experiment of comparing the two scores, but I think we'd find that Lost World is, is probably more frightening, maybe more dissonant, maybe a little bit more, with a little harder edge to it, and maybe scarier than than Jurassic Park would be of necessity because of the different styles and, and, and look and texture of, of each film. I really enjoyed the percussion throughout the score, and I like Spielberg's thought that it would highlight the jungle atmosphere of this island. It works very well. Now, this is the most percussion we've heard in a John Williams score since Images in 1972. And the use of percussion is quite evident in the concert suite Williams wrote around the main theme of the film, which I'll play for you here.
I absolutely love this theme, Jeff, although its use in the film is a bit odd to me. It's great to suggest moving to the island, across the island, etc. But in my opinion, it sometimes plays in the wrong places, like when they capture the T-Rex on the island or when Ludlow is eaten. The main melody is in 3-4, which means that there's one beat missing compared to the original theme. Here's the original Jurassic Park theme. And here's the Lost World theme. This missing beat gives it a sort of hurried feel and an unease that I think the first doesn't have because four beats feels a lot more stable and comfortable to us. The melody is basically just going up and down a minor scale. but there are major chords on top. Normally, we think of minor as sad and major as happy, so you get this mix of anticipation and wonder, and then also unease and fear. Uh, these major chords are being planed, which is when you play the same type of chord up and down a scale. It's the exact same thing used for the Rebellion theme in Star Wars, but in The Lost World, it's major chords and a minor scale instead of major and major. The fact that Williams uses planing is important because it uses notes outside this key or scale, which also signifies to her ear that we're going somewhere away from what we know, in this case, to a second island that's much different than what we've seen in the first movie. I definitely got the feeling that this main theme was not going for excitement, but rather gloom and doom. This movie as a whole is much darker, so the main theme has to suit that mood. The first scene of the film, however, seemed much more innocent to me than the first scene in Jurassic Park when a velociraptor attacks a man and eats him. This time, a little girl is walking on a beach and encounters a bunch of tiny animals, which could accurately be called ankle biters because they aren't much taller than your ankle. As the girl walks away from her parents on the beach, Williams brings in the glissando strings, letting us know things may not be just a regular beach vacation.
she sees the first dinosaur. Even though she thinks it's cute, the music isn't innocent, but not too scary right now. Things get a little out of hand now as more of the tiny dinosaurs come out of the forest. We get a lot of high shrieks on the piccolo, some strong timpani drums to make it more urgent, and dissonance in the rest of the orchestra as we don't see what's happening to the little girl, but the music is telling us plenty. The music for this scene perfectly sets up the type of music that will permeate most of the score. Though these dinosaurs, which we later learn are called Compsonachthys, or Compies, will later return in the film to do more damage. Williams doesn't write a theme for them. Instead, he uses dynamics to tell us about these dinosaurs musically. Dynamics in music give a performer instructions on how to play their instruments, and Williams goes for some unusual tactics. You're correct there, Jeff. Um, I'd say all these elements kind of create this great cacophony of sound, and it bears a lot of resemblance to the mid-20th century experimental classical music. Um, it leaves us really unsettled in this opening scene, especially since we don't see what happened to that girl. Uh, how about we skip forward and we talk about the scene when the compies return later in the film? Yeah, sure, that works for me. Great. Um, so at this point, Dieter has gone into the woods for a bathroom break, and he finds himself face to face with a compie. He doesn't think too much of it until others show up and he's chased through the forest. Eventually, Dieter is taken down and killed by a swarm of compies as the camera pans to a stream turning blood red. This cue is in two parts, uh, with a break where Dieter thinks that he's gotten away from the tiny predators. William creates panic in a really cool way here with a lot of unconventional techniques that he hasn't used all that often up until, uh, up until this point. First, we hear stopped French horns, or horns that have muted their sound with their hands. This gives the very nasal and raspy sound. Um, underneath that are strings playing glissandos and trills, which blur the pitch, and a piano plays random notes. Uh, the piccolo is asked to play random high shrieks, and the rest of the woodwinds and brass are asked to play the same note as fast as they possibly can.
The compies return later, after Dieter thinks that he's tricked them into running away. Uh, slowly, the music builds back up, and we're treated to some percussion improvisation on almost every instrument imaginable. My personal favorites here are the sizzle cymbal and the ratchet. They just have such a unique sound. <laughs> this music finally comes to a climax as Dieter is overpowered, and virtually every instrument is given free reign to play whatever they please. And these two cues bring to mind some of the music Jerry Goldsmith wrote for Planet of the Apes. Very dissonant and wild and just fun to hear. Some of this music wasn't put into the final film, so it's great to present it all here. I absolutely love the Planet of the Apes score, Jeff, so thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, I love it too. Now let's go back to Ian's arrival to the New Island. Everyone remembers the music written for the arrival to the island in the original film. Very majestic and heavy on the brass instruments and one of my favorite Williams cues ever. I don't think Williams wanted to try and equal that, and I don't think he could with the new main theme he created for this film. It doesn't really lend itself to a big brassy performance. So when Ian and his team are seen on a boat heading to Isla Sorna, 
the strings do most of the heavy lifting with the main theme. Notice that there is a synthesized percussion element underneath the entire time. I was disappointed that Williams did not use the island theme from the 1993 film for the arrival of the boat, especially since he had used the theme about five minutes earlier when Ian decides to go to the island to rescue his girlfriend, who's a paleontologist named Sarah, played wonderfully by Julianne Moore. Now, Alex, I know I am not a composer, but I think a rousing statement of the original island theme for a few seconds, followed by the new main theme, would have been a more rousing and exciting musical moment. What do you think? I agree with you, Jeff. Uh, this new theme is a little too subdued and dark for a grand statement as they arrive, and I think a few more callbacks to the original score would have been a really nice touch. So, along with Ian and his team, there's another group on the island made of dinosaur hunters looking to trap the beasts and bring them to San Diego for the ultimate zoo. They arrive to the island with drums and a few brass hits a pretty quiet introduction to the cacophony that's to follow. This is the scene that most exemplifies Williams' work in creating rhythmic music cues instead of melodic ones. You're right and that this is a very rhythmic cue, and Williams actually uses something called complex meter to heighten the drama here. Uh, complex meter is a grouping of beats that has both sets of two and three in them. Uh, so this combination of one and two and one and two and and then also one and and two and and one and and two and and creates this really uneasy feel. It's almost like the music is limping. One and and two and one and and two and. Williams mixes these bars into the groove and it throws you off your game to keep you just as disoriented as these dinosaurs that are being hunted. Most of this cue is in three four plus five eight, which sounds really scary, but really just sounds like this. 
1 and 2 and 3 and 1 and and 2 and. As you mentioned earlier, this cue is driven by the percussion in the background. Bongos, tom-toms, congas, timpani, a tambourine, and a tabla, or an Indian drum, are beating away underneath the woodwind swirls and runs and the brass interruptions. I also really love the horn rips here, which is when they shoot up to a high note really fast and hit all the notes in between. They sound really similar to the dinosaur roars and shrieks throughout the scene. So I want to go back to that complex meter thing. That sounds like it would be very difficult to play, even for a professional musician. Would you agree with that? Yes, um, especially here, there's not a solid groove going on the whole time. Every once in a while, you skip around a bit. Um, so it's, it's not the easiest thing in the world to play, and especially not to sync up to a film. 
right? And I'm sure they had a lot of rehearsal for it. I can guarantee that they probably spent, I would think, an hour possibly on some of these because it is not the easiest thing in the world to play. (laughs) But they did it wonderfully. The final take is really good. I agree. So in keeping with the conversation about making this a rhythmic composition, John Williams sticks with his main theme underneath instead of creating a melody that would best enhance this scene. I hadn't watched this movie since it was released in theaters, and all these years later, it's kind of breaking my heart to see these dinosaurs being rounded up and captured, especially since these are herbivores. So, in a way, the more romantic main theme works in this scene to convey that heartbreak, but at the same time, the driving rhythm that dominates this scene shows that the hunters are ultimately in charge. I felt that dichotomy while watching this scene, and feel it just as much when listening to the music apart from the visuals. A great series of musical choices here that really highlight this scene. My favorite scene in the movie comes when the T-Rex parents arrive at the double trailer to rescue their infant, whose leg was injured when it was captured by the hunters. Williams wrote music for this tense scene as the T-Rex parents see their baby inside, but that music was taken out. After setting the infant free, the T-Rex parents push the trailer over the edge, again with the originally planned music removed. The music returns on Sarah's perilous fall onto the glass window. It's a nice mood setter with low rumbling strings and then my favorite, quivering high notes to put us on the edge of our seat. So it's the music for the start of this big rescue by Eddie with his truck that showcases the different style William set on for the score. The big percussion, bass, and piano are interesting instrument choices for this. I would have expected something with higher notes and a little more rushed performance to accentuate the urgency. But we should learn to expect the unexpected with John Williams. Thank you. 
So Alex, what's your favorite scene? That's a hard one to pick, Jeff. There's a lot of action here to pick from, but I'd say my favorite scene probably comes when the group has almost made it to the communications compound, which is at the other side of the island, uh, and they are about to call for help. Uh, Ian, his daughter, named Kelly, and Sarah are ambushed by velociraptors, and they have to use some quick thinking and Kelly's gymnastics skills to avoid getting eaten. Uh, this cue starts with some exotic sounding lines with an ethnic flute and percussion. The raptors attack, and the percussion is off to the races, keeping a steady rhythm for the brass to battle it out with lots of standalone hits. Almost all the lines in the brass are moving upward here, which heightens the tension of the scene and hints at Kelly and Sarah's next move. Ian is left to fend for himself, while the girls, trapped in the shed, end up climbing up the pipes and ladders to get away from the velociraptor. The brass also has some really jazzy rhythms here, which are unexpected, but I think they fit the scene really well.
That scene always gets me Jeff, and William's music does a great job of making me even more anxious during the raptor encounter. Oh yes, those jazzy chords in the brass section are kind of cool too, and it's very different from the eerie string writing he did for the raptors in Jurassic Park. Now what I don't like about this cue in the film is that the sound effects overpower the percussion some of the time, but it's still a very, very energetic composition. Now, Mark Raps is a big fan of the Lost World score, and he wrote to me recently to talk about several aspects of the score. He mentioned several scenes that were re-edited after Williams had finished recording, which prompted some musical changes. One of them was the moment everyone gets onto the helicopter immediately after the raptor's attack. The music here was supposed to be a continuation of the music from the raptor attack, but instead we get a very rousing rendition of the main theme instead, which comes from the concert version. Now, I have to agree with the choice to put in the main theme concert version, because at this point, we really needed music to help us celebrate the escape. characters take off and begin their return to the mainland, the next cue features some good old-fashioned Williams writing, beginning with a haunting melody in the violas and cellos. We cut to Roland and Ludlow as they discuss taking the Buck T-Rex back to San Diego, and when Roland refuses a job at the new park, there are minor chords in the trombones. Next, the strings begin the main theme as Ian realizes that the T-Rex is headed to the mainland. This is one of the places where I really don't feel that the theme works all that well, but I won't disregard the fact that it is a really beautiful string and horn arrangement of it.
There really isn't a whole lot here compared to the rest of the score, and I think that's part of the reason I like this cue so much. It's so similar to what you might find in a standard background Williams cue, and it's really nice to have this to listen to after all the shrieks, noises, and constant driving forward of the previous hour of the film. I could almost see it as the characters and the music both tiring out after a long journey across the island. Well, I was worn out too. That was pretty much an hour of non-stop action, much more intense than we got in Jurassic Park, and a lot more on-screen deaths as well. So I'd like to highlight one more musical cue, and it's the moment when the T-Rex is unleashed on San Diego. The music keeps some of the same tone as the rest of the score, but as the T-Rex was making his way off the ship and toward the dock, we get ominous brass that sounds just a bit like what Max Steiner might have composed for monster movies of the 1930s and 1940s, including, of course, Steiner's King Kong, which was perhaps intended as an homage. Before I play this music, I will let you know that Spielberg put in an intentional homage to the 1993 King Kong movie in this scene. The ship that brings the T-Rex to the mainland is called the SS Venture, the same name of the ship that brought King Kong to New York City. And listen for the somewhat subtle performance of the original Jurassic Park theme as well. Sander Van Deren is a longtime listener of the show, and we've had some email conversations about the score for The Lost World. He talked about this being his first soundtrack that he bought before seeing the movie, and being surprised at the lack of thematic material from the first film. But he brought up an interesting point about the music for the T-Rex's escape from the boat that I want to share. He said that Williams finally gave John Hammond his wish with the music for this moment. You remember back in the film Jurassic Park when John Hammett said during the animated introduction that he wanted the music that would go boom, 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 boom. So I really like that observation because each brass hit here does almost mimic the dinosaur's pounding footsteps. So like Sander, the Jurassic Park score officially brought me into the world of John Williams and helped me to really understand the role of movie music. The music for The Lost World is a nice effort, and I appreciate the challenge by Williams to go with a stylistic change in composition, almost 180 degrees from what we were expecting. As we said earlier, this is going to be a musical choice in all future action movies, especially those directed by Spielberg, but also the Star Wars prequels and sequels. 
Even though critics deemed The Lost World a bit of a mixed bag, the anticipation of the movie brought fans of the original to it in droves. The movie broke lots of box office records, including the biggest Memorial Day weekend and the biggest one-day earning. It also earned $100 million faster than any previous film, doing so in six days. But with all these records, The Lost World didn't earn as much money as Jurassic Park, $618 million worldwide as opposed to $914 million. All this talk of The Lost World making money hand over fist was quickly quieted about six months later when Titanic started its voyage toward earning $1 billion worldwide. John Williams' only Peer Award nomination for this score came with a Grammy nomination for its soundtrack album, competing with the score he would write after this, Seven Years in Tibet. Competing against himself might have hurt his chances for a 17th Grammy Award, which was given to Gabriel Yarrett for The English Patient. So this would be Williams' final foray into the world of Jurassic Park's dinosaurs. He would still earn some royalties, I bet, when Don Davis used Williams' music for Jurassic Park 3 in 2001, and then when Michael Giacchino referenced the maestro's music for the Jurassic World films. And Spielberg would step out of the director's chair for the remaining Jurassic Park films, but he would serve as executive producer, which is essentially the same as director, but with strong controls over ideas and money, for every Jurassic Park movie that followed. So Alex, do you have any final thoughts on The Lost World? It's not the greatest movie in the world, but I'd say it's a really good effort by Spielberg and Williams. Um, I think most of your listeners probably haven't seen it for quite some time, so I'd urge them to go back and watch it to at least give the music a second chance. And there's also some actually pretty great uh, special effects for the year it was made in that have held up pretty well. Yes, the visual effects were nominated for an Oscar, and like I said, they really brought it forward by having the dinosaurs interacting with humans. And of course, nothing could compete why Titanic and the Lost World's visual effects did not win the Oscar. But regarding the music, that's what I always hope people will do for many of these films, is really rediscover them and see kind of maybe some new aspects that they hadn't noticed before. Alex, it's been a pleasure exploring the music of The Lost World with you. Thank you for offering your insights, which have given me a new perspective on this score. And thank you for having me, Jeff. This has been a lot of fun. So John Williams continued his virtual globe-hopping world tour of 1997 with a trip to Tibet for his next score. He would bring the cellist Yo-Yo Ma with him for the score to the Brad Pitt film Seven Years in Tibet. That's going to be the topic of the next episode of The Baton. While you're waiting for that, please feel free to submit a review on Apple Podcasts and send me an email to jeffswim at aol.com with thoughts about the show. I'm so happy you joined us today, and until then, the baton is down. <laughs>